Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. In June 2020, Canada will know whether it will again become a member of the United Nations Security Council. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau had pledged himself in 2015 to lobby for a place on this august council. Canada has not been a member since 2000. The Security Council consists of 15 members. Five of them are permanent members, Russia, China, the United States, Great Britain, and France. They each have a veto, meaning that unless all five of the permanents agree, nothing happens. The rest of the members sit on council for a two-year term. Canada has sat on the Security Council six times, Effective role. I mean, this was an important issue. Not many people, no, nobody was really aware of it. 
But it was critical. It was absolutely critical. It wasn't something you could plan for. It wasn't something that you could say, I want to be on the Security Council so I can solve this problem. It's, it's in many ways exactly how diplomacy is supposed to work. You put yourself in the right place at the right time, and you can make an effective difference. So what is involved in the work of being a member of the Security Council? So the work of the Council has evolved over, over its 75-plus years. Uh, at the beginning, there were irregular meetings, maybe weekly, maybe biweekly, and more often in a crisis. But today, it's, much, it's a much busier, much more intense commitment for two years. You have public meetings of the Council. There are private consultations of the Council. There are private preparations for the private pr- consultations. And there's also an extensive group of committees that you serve on while you are on the Council. And the non-permanent members chair the committees. So that's an additional duty. Typically, if you join the Security Council, you have to beef up your foreign service quite significantly in New York. That's extra costs. I, it is typically an extra cost, or it's a shift of resources so that uh, diplomats that were doing other things are moved to New York and do this exclusively for two years. So the advantage of being at the UNSC is to be present, it's to be in the game, to be in the room? I think there are three big advantages. Uh, The first advantage is is that presence, but that presence really means access and influence. And what I mean by access is that you meet daily these days with, first of all, the permanent five that you mentioned, mm-hmm. United States, uh, United Kingdom, France, uh, China, and Russia, as well as the other non-permanent members who quite often are quite significant. India will be on the council in 2021-22, for example. Meeting with them regularly means that you can discuss things with them that you might not be able to discuss otherwise. We right now in Canada have two individuals being detained by the Chinese, not all that legally, and we've been having trouble communicating with the Chinese to get them out. On the Security Council, we'd be sitting literally beside China every day for two years. And that's, you can build a relationship and possibly uh, have find a solution. There. Yeah. Maybe so uh, access is important. Is there any disadvantage? Uh, there, there are a couple of challenges when you're on the council. Uh, you can't avoid voting and therefore making your position public on issues that sometimes you'd want to hide from. And every time we've pursued a seat on the council, Global Affairs has warned the government that you can't hide on the council. Beyond that, uh, yes, it is a heavy workload, but uh, everyone I've interviewed about it has said that it's more than worth it in the grand scheme. Well, you you raise the issue of not being on the council, and as I read your book, it, it, it occurred a number of times, especially in the first 30 years, I'd say, where the public servants working in external would, would advise against seeking a seat on the on the council. Is it because of the work? It's just a workload? For the first 30 to 40 years, in fact, our first uh, three times we served, uh, we didn't want to be there. <laughs> uh, the feeling in global affairs or foreign affairs or external affairs was that the UN Security Council was strangled by the great power veto. The Soviets were vetoing everything. Nothing mm-hmm. was going on at the council. And as a result, it would be a waste of administrative time and resources. At the same time, if Canada was going to be a believer in the UN and a promoter of an international rules-based order, for us to not take our turn serving on the council would have been viewed by the wider community as a vote of non-confidence. So we served... To, to demonstrate our confidence in the UN system and our support it was our duty. for it. It was exactly. our duty. It was a duty. Uh, things changed a, a little before that, actually. Uh, the Trudeau government, Trudeau the Elder, uh, in the mid-1970s, when uh, for external affairs told uh, notified the government, you know, if you want to serve every 10 years, 10 years is coming up. What do you want to do? He said, well, I, I want to study. He said, I want to hear the pros and cons in detail. I want it taken to a cabinet committee, and we're going to 
think this through for ourselves. Uh, the cabinet committee weighed the pros and cons and said that in in the grand scheme of things, it was worth the risk of embarrassing yourself with a, a vote and upsetting your allies. Uh, it's the height of the Cold War, yeah. 77, 78. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it's... it was the height. They felt that it, the access was important, that there was potential uh, to make a difference perhaps on a specific issue that they did or didn't see coming. And they also thought at the time that the term they were going up for wasn't going to be that busy. And as a result, you could avoid some of the problems that, that other terms had had. After that, it became a sort of something that, that we did. We still had memorandum to cabinet that said these are the pros and cons, but governments typically said yes uh, every time after that. Um, there's another aspect of the UNSC that's interesting, is, and that is that the presidency changes every month. And Canada, uh, I've looked at the list, Canada has sat as the president of the Security Council 12 times since since its creation. Does being a president make a difference? Being a president is actually critical if you want to be an activist member of mm. the council. And the reason for that is as president, you control the council's agenda for the month. So if there's an issue you want discussed, the only time you can guarantee it will be discussed is during your one or two months that you are president. So... Given what you said earlier, that the Security Council is much more activist right now, its, it's, it's agenda is more, is more heavily loaded, there's an interest in being a president, even if it's a month. Yes. Uh, typically, if a delegation is preparing for a term on the UN Security Council, they will map out the entire 24 months in terms of who holds the presidency in which month, and they will plot their strategies to, to affect change accordingly. It's fascinating politics, isn't it? I mean, it's deep diplomacy. Yeah, it is a, a diplomat's uh, dream come true to sit on the to serve on the council. Because they serve on a council in New York City, or just because they sit on the council? <laughs> oh, I think the politics are just as much fun as New York. I don't think they see a lot of New York during these two years. It's busy, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Okay. Um, now it's, it's striking again. As I said earlier, the last time we sat on the council was ninety nine two ninety nine two thousand. Yes. And it seems again, reading your book, that it was pretty easy to get on, um, but it's become much more difficult since then. Um, why has it become more difficult? So I think relatively speaking, it's more difficult. I don't think it was qu the diplomats who ran the campaigns for the 89-90 term and the 99-2000 won't say that it was easy for them. They, they worked extremely right. hard, but we did lose the last time. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a couple of things going on that have made it more difficult for us. Uh, one is that there's been a trend in the last 20 to 30 years that smaller countries that wouldn't even typically consider pursuing a seat have gotten interested. So the year after we lost in uh, 2010, or the, the election after we lost in 2010, Luxembourg defeated Finland, which was just shocking to the world. So, Sounds like a hockey result. Yeah, very much. <laughs> so, so the idea being that there are new candidates that hadn't been out there that are that are adding to the challenge. And the other challenge in Canada, I would suggest, is that it's gotten partisan. And when it's partisan, you don't have a whole-of-country effort. And the, the partisanship didn't show up until after 2006. Uh, the Harper government inherited a bid from uh, the previous Liberal government. Uh, that bid didn't go as well as anyone would have liked. In the middle of it, the Liberal opposition leader, Michael Ignatieff, criticized the government, said maybe Canada didn't deserve a bid. The Harper government compounded that by spreading what Ignatieff had said across the world in a number of diplomatic speeches and then blaming Ignatieff when they didn't win, as well as not inviting any liberals to support the bid while they were campaigning for it. And it hasn't gotten better since. Michael Ignatieff being the son of George Ignatieff. Indeed. There's a lot of Ignatieffs already in this podcast. You're right. Okay. Um, what does it take to win today? It takes a whole-of-government effort, for the Western European and others group at least. Uh, 
It takes a lot of money because uh, vote trading is absolutely critical. You can't win without swapping votes, and swapping votes may mean upgrading a mission to an embassy or adding staff at an embassy to support that country, or more, it may mean adding a small development program in a certain country. So money matters. Uh, having a, a leadership that is that are willing to travel and promote the bid personally matters because some delegates will make their decision based on whether they spoke to the head of government of a G7 country. That matters in terms of their popularity at home. Uh, being well-organized matters. Not taking any votes for granted matters. And ideally, starting early matters. And that's not something we did this time. I'd say there's, a, and there's another element in all this. Um, Canada's, I mean, tell me you agree or disagree. I, I would argue that Canada's footprint among those many nations that are now interested has diminished in the sense that we are no longer the peacekeepers that we once were. Our, our, our budget in terms of peacekeeping has been slashed since the mid-1990s. Our foreign aid has been very targeted since the last, I'd say, 25 years. We don't have the presence, I would argue, around the world that would make potential supporters comfortable with us. In other words, we'd be coming into the door saying, hey, we're, we're back. Well, where have you been? Is it, I mean, in other words, to win a seat on the UNSC would require, I would think, constant exposure. Are we not, 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 not as a fault of, of the Harper government or the Trudeau government, but are we not, could we not be the victims of the fact that we have, over the last 25 years, assumed a much smaller presence around the world? So I think I agree with part of what you've said. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think our peacekeeping record matters very much because peacekeeping typically will take place in one country and one vote out of 193 isn't a big deal. I think the, uh, our foreign aid matters more. Uh, and, not, and, it's more the, and it doesn't always matter the size of a program you have in a country, but having an effective program in a country is something that countries remember. So that, that will certainly matter. And we, we aren't doing as much of that as we were before. Uh, whether you have a consulate or an embassy in a country matters as well. And more important, when you close them, these countries don't tend to forget that very much. So that makes things more difficult as well. On the other hand, a benefit Canada has is as a larger country with a larger footprint than our competitors, uh, it's not as if uh, Ireland is going to go and open 20 embassies to, to counter the fact that we aren't in as many as we used to be in. If we don't win in June, we can lobby again for two years' time, right? Uh, if we don't win in June, we could jump into another contested election right away. Mm -hmm. uh, I would guess that the government would conclude that jumping into a con an contested election might not be the best way of doing business, and they might want to look for an open seat. The next open seat, in other words, the next time there are two seats for our Western European and others group where other countries haven't already announced that they're interested, is around 2030. Oh, goodness. So... It might be 2030 before we try again. Your book talks glowingly of a number of uh, examples uh, where we made a difference. Uh, one of them was Brian Mulroney's uh, term. Mr. Mulroney was a real champion for the UNSC. He really wanted a seat. Um, what happened? Uh, was it personal for him, do you think? Or was there real policy thrust involved? So I think Mulroney's foreign policy was typically very visceral. It came from his gut. He didn't choose to run for the Security Council. When he arrived, we'd already put our bid in. He didn't even know, to be honest, that we had bid when he became prime minister. And when he chose his first uh, permanent representative to the United Nations, Stephen Lewis, they didn't talk about the Security Council seat because neither of them knew that part of Lewis's job was going to be to campaign for it. 
At the same time, he believed strongly in the UN, and I think that the re- one of the reasons that was is that he understood influence through uh, what one of our diplomats today calls relevance. In other words, he believed that Canada mattered when people wanted access to Canada. So if we were the best friends of the United States, we mattered because if people wanted to get to the U.S., we were a way that you could get to the U.S. If we were on the Security Council, there were only uh, 15 countries there. There were 175-odd countries that were not, which meant that if you wanted to reach any of the members of the Council, Canada was one of the countries you could go through. That made us important. Uh, it made us matter, and he also got along extremely well with most of the world leaders at the time. The so. timing, the timing. I mean, looking back, the timing was awesome. Eighty nine, ninety. I mean, the world changes. The collapse of of, of the Soviet Union, uh, the collapse of the, of the Berlin Wall, the the falling apart of the uh, of the Soviet um, grip on Eastern Europe, um, the war in Kuwait is starting to brew. Um, it's a good time to be on the United yeah. Nations Security yeah. Council. Isn't yeah. it? The funny thing is that when Canada put in its bid, we were in the heart of the Cold War, the height of the Cold War. It looked like it might have gone nuclear. Mm. By the time we got there, the Cold War was done and the council was working better than it ever has in the history of the United Nations. They dealt with Iran-Iraq. They were dealing with Namibian independence. The council was actually making things happen effectively. Leaning on South Africa? Yeah. Leaning on South Africa as well. And Real big time. Some of what you had to do during that period, ironically, was to get out of the way of the great powers cooperating. I mean, this wasn't where the, the great powers were actually a net positive on the council during these years. Move 10 years forward. And again, you argue um, that Canada was probably at its most influential uh, in the years 1999-2000 when um, the Liberals are again in power. It's the Jean Chrétien government, and Lloyd Axworthy is the Minister of External Relations. What's, what's uh, your interpretation of that? So, so this term was exceptional in the literal uh, sense of the term. Yes, it was very good and very effective, but it was also extremely unusual. Uh, we had never, Canada had never until this point tried to be an activist on the council, uh, brought, come to the council with a specific policy agenda that we wanted to implement through UN Security Council resolutions and other methods. Axworthy did do that. And uh, shockingly, given that most of the time these things are not successful, he s- absolutely succeeded in two different elements. One is uh, institutionalizing the protection of civilians in armed conflict, and the other is uh, in naming and shaming states that, are vi- that were violating international sanctions. And how much of the presence of Canada in those, in those circles affected its, its initiatives, for example, on, on um, landmines? So most of landmines was achieved before we got to the council, but what the, the link is that Axworthy's success with, with landmines gave him street credibility at the United Nations Security Council. Uh, it also gave him credibility amongst the non-council members. And uh, on top of that, perhaps most important, we had an extremely strong relationship with the Security Council Secretariat and the UN Secretariat more, generally, more broadly. And when you're not a permanent member... The Secretariat is is your greatest ally when you're trying to make things happen in New York. You remind me, circling back again to the Mulroney years, people forget, and you bring it back in your in your book, that Mr. Mulroney was seriously being considered as a permanent secretary for the UN. Yes. After, was that the result of, of, of the, the term on, on the U.S., on the United Nations Security Council? Yeah, I think the Security Council term played a very significant role in, in the fact that the Americans did approach Mr. Mulroney after our term and ask him if he was interested in having his name put forward to become the next Secretary General. They were quite confident that they could pull uh, some of the great powers uh, around to his 
uh, to his candidature, uh, to Canada's uh, un- uh, misfortune, he said no. And, and it never He had happened. other business to deal with. He had other business to deal with that didn't work out nearly as well as he had hoped. And uh, it, I think it would have worked out very well if he had been Secretary General. In hindsight, he should have taken the job. I think so. <laughs> uh, well, it's always fun to speculate eh, uh, in terms of, of, of history. We've talked about a number of occasions where Canada um, played a, a positive role. But as a historian, looking back with the cold eye of, of, uh, of the present, do you think it really made a difference? I think in the large scheme, you ha- you'd have to ask, well, if Canada hadn't been there and another member of the Western European and others group had been there, would things have been the same, uh, different, better, or worse? Mm-hmm. I think generally speaking, it's a net, Canada's experience has been a net positive. Uh, the initiatives that we've uh, shepherded through successfully have generally speaking in- enhanced the stability of the world order. Uh, it hasn't ever hurt us to be on the council. Relations with other countries haven't particularly suffered. It's been excellent for our diplomats who, from everyone I've interviewed, become much more effective diplomats having served on the council than before. Uh, and uh, so I think, yes. Now, is it a massive difference that's changed the universe? No. But in the grand scheme of diplomacy, where everything is baby steps and increments, I think if you can serve on the council, you, you would always say yes. It's a good place for a small power to be on a large scale, as, as your subtitle says. Yeah, small power, large stage, exactly right. Is there an opportunity cost? At one point in your book, you say that the the public servants and external were saying that, if I understand you correctly, if I remember correctly, um, that the uh, getting a seat on the UNSC might compromise our chances to be on another one of those great agencies. Uh, I think the one that came up was the the um, uh, Economic and Social Council, ECOSOC, or something like that. Is there an opportunity cost uh, for Canada to to uh, to pursue something like the Security Council? There are many ways that Canada can exercise influence on the UNSC. It's not the end of the world if we're not win this uh, presence there. There are many other places in the UN where we can really play a strong role. Yeah. So the the two opportunity costs. Uh, one is the election, the opportunity cost of the election, which takes up a huge amount of, right. of time and resources for the Department of Global Affairs, External mm-hmm. Affairs, Foreign Affairs, and for the political level if they're doing a good job and are involved. And then on the council again, uh, it's a diversion of time and resources. That said, I don't think I think it's a worthwhile uh, cost because, especially because of that access. There is no other venue in the world where you can have guaranteed access to the Americans, the Brits, the French, the Chinese, and the Russians 24-7 for, two, for 700 plus days in a row. Even with the G7, with the, the, the ministers of finance getting together, the G20, you're still saying that it, it still matters. Yeah. All of these other meetings are one-offs and mm. they're pull-aways right. and you can be shunted and you can be ignored if they choose to because uh, there are enough countries there, but you can't hide in the Security Council. You can't hide in New York City. You may want to, <laughs> but you can't hide there. Let me finish off by asking you the classic Champlain Society question. Your book is thick with footnotes. I love it for that. Um we're always concerned about access to documents. Uh, what sources did you use in this study? You had access to a whole bunch of news sources. Yeah, so a lot of the documents from the Department of External Affairs held in Library and Archives Canada and Ottawa were still closed. So I opened th- tens of thousands, actually, of pages of documents there. 
Uh, Global Affairs has an informal access program that allows research to, researchers to see more recent documents from foreign affairs. I was able to access some that way. I did about a hundred about a hundred interviews with practitioners that opened up a, a lot of doors. And how far back could you go? Uh, I was able to speak to people who were on the council in the 1970s, so 77, 78, uh, and who had remembered a little bit before that. Mm-hmm. So I had 77, 78, I had 89, 90, I had 99, 2000, and I had people involved in the unsuccessful campaign. And then with the, with the international archives, I looked at papers that national scholars, say from the United States or the UK, just wouldn't have considered important because what Canada was doing on the Security Council while they were there wouldn't have been a big deal. So I saw a number of papers that I'm sure had been seen many times but had never been used in the context that I used them. So you were able to use international archival work? Yes, American, French, British, uh, and United Nations documents as well. So a really well-rounded study. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for, for coming into studio and talking with us. My pleasure. That was Adam Chapnick, the author of Canada and the United Nations Security Council, A Small Power on a Large Stage. It's published by the University of British Columbia Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at champlainsociety.ca, where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. If you like this stuff, please let people know by using whatever social media you use. It would help spread the message, and we'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Dudil. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University on February 5th, 2020, and it was produced by Michael Smith. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.